Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and this week we are joined by Bill Hurd. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 381. Bill Hurd is one of the early engineers of home computers, having led the hardware design for the Commodore C128 and Plus 4 series of computers in the mid-1980s. Mr. Hurd continued to design high-speed vision systems through the 1990s and now is involved in the online electronics community. He co-hosts a weekly webcast, which can be seen at Coriolis-Effect.com. Thank you, Bill, for coming on our podcast. Oh, well, thank you for having me. So before we get started with everything, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of podcasts and a lot of uh, webinars that you've done in the past, um, all the, all your Commodore history and that kind of stuff. But instead of reiterating that on this episode of the podcast, you have a new book that you can uh, that has all your war stories, so to speak, in it. Well, first, you, you you can't actually get me to stop telling war stories. That That is a misnomer. Uh, but I'll try and slow them down for you a bit. But uh, I tried. I, I've got the <laughs> here. <laughs> so, yeah, plug, i got to plug the book. I have a co-author, so I, I owe it to her. Margaret Morabito uh, from the old Run magazine helped me. Uh, she co-authored this, and we got a book called Back into the Storm, a story of the uh, design engineer story of Commodore computers in the 1980s. So it's not a great read. It's kind of a fun read, but it's every memory I had shoved into a book. So I've heard it called a, uh, uh, a it, just a, a whimsical chain of ideas type. Uh, it, what's that word, that flow of reason or whatever? I forget the term, but that was how it's been described. Well, okay. So b before before we move on, how about you tell what's one of your favorite stories from the book? That's funny. I like to turn the question around on you and say, if you had read the book, what was one of your favorite ones? <laughs> or if you had a computer, what was your favorite computer? And I'll tell you a story about it. So no, the the, the book starts out, you know, we're, we're I, you know, I'm a high school dropout, uh, but I loved electronics. And so I taught myself electronics as much as I could. I trained all the kids in my uh, uh, small town in Indiana. If they found a TV chassis to drag it down the alley to me, and the kids got good. They even know to put it in the Zenith pile for me and stuff like that. And these were the days when swapping uh, tubes actually would fix things. So having a tube collection sorted by vendor in your backyard was actually advantageous. So I, I did take a class in TV repair so that I got some formal education. And uh, then I got a job at Pennsylvania Scale Company um, as a technician and I worked my way up to engineer. And I was able to do that because I had read the data books, that, that the national data books that you could buy from Radio Shack. I'd read them cover to cover. And that's literally how I got my foot in the door and became an associate engineer, then an engineer. And, uh, it, it, you know, so it was that passion to teach yourself back before there was an Internet to, where you could learn. You could only learn it from books or from somebody else back then. There were no TV shows for this kind of thing, no webcasts. So, yeah, so I got to Commodore. And they must have recognized that, you know, when, when I showed up the, the day they went to hire me, uh, or I, 
I didn't do well. I screwed up the, the interview more than once. But at one point they caught me, I was muttering these opcodes under my breath as the guy is talking the machine code. And they realized I understood the opcodes inside the thing. And that they're like, okay, come on down. Let's, meanwhile, long hair, you know, in jeans, that type thing. So, yeah. So it, I, I'd say it's just, you know, the intro of the book where it tries to take you back to the 80s, you know, be, time before cell phones and fact, well, we just got a thing called a fax machine back then. Uh, so um, where can people get the book at then? Is it the normal people like Amazon or? Yes, it's available through Amazon. Um, you, you know, it's, uh, uh, and it's available as Kindle. And the bad news is if you buy the hardbound book, you don't get the color pictures. It's actually backwards. But So I recommend buying both. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, cool. Um, so our first topic today, I, I guess we can talk about the couple topics we're going to discuss today. Uh, so it's going to be the uh, Vintage Computer Festival. Um, yes. It's going to be... Uh, your show, uh, that was Coriolis Effect? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then uh, DFM and assembly process kind of just over your career, so to speak. Yeah, just to talk, to try and link to new stuff so these young kids these days can relate, you know. that's Back back when your, your DRAM only had like 16 leads on it, you know, uh, the 8-bit days. So, but no, VCF East, which we've already had, we had it August or April 23rd, something like that. We had an amazing turnout. We broke all the VCF records. We, you know, coming back from the pandemic helped. Oh, so, um, so uh, VCF is the Vintage Computer Festival. I'm sorry. Yes, thank okay. you. The Vintage Computer Federation, which holds VCF events, which I call VC uh, Vintage Computer Festivals. And so we had the festival last month at on the East Coast in Wall, New Jersey, and I hosted a roundtable of webcasters. I, I, I don't personally care for the term YouTuber, um, but some people are YouTubers, but not me, right? Um, but we had Fran Blanche, Jerry Ellsworth, we had Usagi Electric, uh, who else am I forgetting there? The 8-Bit Guy, uh, Adrian Black. We had all these very cool people all on stage at the same time to talk about making webcasts and, their, and how they respond to their, uh, the people that watch them and whatnot. So we, we just had a great event. We had a, uh, uh, the, the, the consignment was just crazy. They, it, it was backed up out the door by 8 in the morning. Just how many people bring stuff to show off? To sell. So oh, to sell. Is, 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 that's where people go the first day the f early in the morning is to get the good stuff out of consignment. There's people walking out with Amiga 600s and stuff, just, uh, you know, and all smiling, right? And nobody complaining about the length of time to stand because it was in a small room this year and they would only let a couple people in at a time. So they're, they're working on that part of it so that we do it. But it was due to growth. So what a great reason to, you know, have a slight hitch in a VCF. So that was uh, East. I'm going to be at VCF Southwest in Dallas-Fort Worth, June 23rd through the 25th. Uh, we're redoing the round table. And for there, I've got uh, 
uh, I've got M Mark Verdelf, Curious Mark, you may know him as, uh, off the internet. And uh, we got a bunch of other people for that round table. And uh, again, people like uh, uh, 8-Bit Guy will be there and whatnot. So it's, it's a really good show. That's 23rd to 25th in Dallas-Fort Worth. And then August 4th and 5th in VCF West, uh, which is in Sunnyvale, Palo Alto, that area. Um, we're just now getting uh, all the people together for that, but I've, we've got Dave Plummer from Microsoft will be one of the, and we're doing the panel again. And there I've got Dave Plummer joining us. So it's uh, a full summer for VCF uh, if you're into the vintage kind of thing. Are you guys into vintage? So for me, um, I actually got my start in electronics modifying old Atari 2600s. Okay. Um, not really the computer side of vintage. Um, I've had to like scrounge around to find a floppy drive to like make this new <laughs> old camera I just picked up work. Right. Um, I finally found one. <laughs> I had to go to a uh, a uh, Goodwill to pick one up. Um, right. But yeah, not really old in the old computers, because um, I, really I didn't really get into computing until about the uh, it'd be what the P two era, Pentium two era. Okay, the bland era of my of of uh, IBM PCs and their clones. It's yeah, yeah. It's uh, so I don't use vintage computers myself. I saw them work forty years ago. I don't turn them on. I don't play with them. I occasionally will stroke one or something. But I, I use like the FPGA Mister uh, and emulate some of the computers I've worked on. And what's really cool, the, we had a noise problem in the C128 called jail bars. And back then, we didn't know as much as we knew, know about grounding and stuff these days. We literally grounded our chips and powered them incorrectly. We did the opposite corners, which has the most inductance compared to two pins side by side let alone four, four ground pins. So we have these non-moving noise artifacts and they're called jail bars. Well, on the Mr. FPGA, there's actually a setting you can turn on the jail bars. So it'll emulate the noise <laughs> of a C128. You know, that's really interesting because you see that a lot too in um, emulators for older co video game consoles and stuff where you can add in like the CRT lines and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I always thought that's interesting because I honestly, I'm not nostalgia for that. Like when you see like media that it matches, but like for actually playing the game, I'm like, no, that's something I did, didn't want to do that. I mean, that was the whole thing with me doing like the Atari video mods for the 2600 was to get rid of that noise. And so you could actually have a clean picture on your screen. Oh, is that the mods you were doing? Like yeah. some low-pass builders or something? Yeah, it, it was picking up. It was basically bypassing the whole, you know, uh, radio frequency circuitry that's built they, into it. Yeah, them. you took the modulator out of the equation. equation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, we used to get drunk and play 2600 invisible tanks. You know, it, it was yeah. the 70s. What can I say? It was... <laughs> Everybody, what? so even then I was known as kind of the computer guy because I had a 2600, you know, in 75, something like that. Back back when we thought they were just electrons and, and not didn't know about electron fields, EM fields as much, you know. 
back in the good old days. Back in the good old days where, yeah, electrons went one way, holes went another, you know, and that's just how current flowed. So uh, on this topic, uh, Chris Kraft from our chat has a good question or a good statement hey, Chris, or a good statement. Um, Chris says, I never understood how retro fans are so much against FPGAs seeing Commodore would frequently spin up custom chips when needed. Right. Right. I, I have no problem with emulation or any, anything like that. Uh, it's yeah. Yeah. The guy, I remember the very first FPGAs, you had to hand route them. The very first Xilinx, uh, you, you literally, you had 64 elements and you had to sit there and hand route it. I swear it was, it was just like making a PC board. It, it wasn't easier. It was just different. Yeah. Was that done in through their IDE? Yeah, yeah, and and so you had to it, do the it, best fit part yourself. Yes, <laughs> and, and it used the CGA monitor, so you had like four colors. I still remember that yellow and the green and some wonky red or something. I forget what the fourth color is. So no, uh, so yeah, working at Commodore um, was like working above a dragon, right? A dragon's den because there was a chip fab in the ground floor. This is when I got to MOS in Norristown, otherwise known as King of Prussia. And you know there's a chip fab down there. You just know it. You smell it. You, the building vibrates. There's trucks pulling up full of liquid nitrogen, you know? So, uh, and, and then the engineers are walking around dressed as wizards with little pointy hats and unicorns and stuff. And you could make any computer you wanted because we had wizards. We had real chip designers. So I'm kind of known for going Apple. Eh, they just used our chips. Well, that's not quite true, but that's the way I looked at it, being a good old MOS employee, Commodore employee. So that was definitely our edge. We, you know, the, the philosophy that we designed for the masses came from a consumer point of view. I've designed instrumentation. And I'll tell you, I. Commodore computers are, I, I want to say they're like toys. They're designed as a consumer product that, you know, that, that no more reliability than you would design into a toy. So it's, so it's amazing they even work to, to this day. Uh, you know, I, I catch grief. It's like, well, if you put a bigger heat sink on there, it would have lasted longer. How long did it last? Only 39 years. <laughs> If, if it had a heat problem, it had broken in, in seven months. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But it's it's amazing. The The Internet has is keeping the vintage movement alive. I You know, the people, number of people that know the name Commodore seems to be growing to me. Or let's say it's easier to find each other in these days of Discord servers and whatnot. Or oh, just go uh, to Vintage Computer Festival. Go to a VCF. I, well said. I couldn't have said that better. Uh, VCFED.org. We should we should kind of put that out there. It's you, you got to know how to find it on the internet. And they they they. Let's see, VCFED.org. Echo Delta. There you go. I'll make sure that goes in our show notes. Oh, cool. Cool. 
Yeah, I, 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 I'm kind of a wrangler for them. I, I, I like them to have good shows, so I go around and bothering people going, why don't you come speak at VCF? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for uh, vintage computering, really the only thing I deal with on that regard is, because I don't really do the Atari stuff anymore, but it's actually more like pinball, which is a computer inside of there. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. We, we went out um, last event, VCF East. We got Jerry Ellsworth to come out. And uh, Fran Blanche had suggested that we go for dinner uh, right next to this pinball arcade in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And they were there till midnight playing pinball together. And it's like, Jerry Ellsworth can lift a table, a pinball table, and kick it about seven inches, eight inches without it tilting. And she's this tiny little thing, and she, you know, so we we're sitting there trying to figure out the physics of Jerry Ellsworth playing pinball, you know, <laughs> where the kinetic energy came from and stuff, right? And she's doing so. She lifts a foot and then kicks it back and at the same time, and, you know, so it's a true technique. There is, uh, so how that sensor works, it's a plumb bob sensor. Right, right. Yeah, and so if you like, if you can move the machine just the right movement, you can make that sensor not move, but you can influence the ball. Right. Yeah. She slides it more than tilts it. Yeah. Is is yeah. kind of what what's going on. And she can slide it. <laughs> and those things aren't aren't light. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, we had a uh, Usagi Electric had driven from Texas. Uh, he'll be at VCF Southwest in Dallas Fort Worth. Um, he had, I recommend Google for his channel, uh, but he's been res restoring old uh, computers where you don't know if he's going to get them to work and then he gets them to work. And it, it's really cool. That That's pulled me in a little bit because I'm like, yes, it's broken. Old sh stuff breaks. What's the big deal? But to actually see people taking the time to fix it is pretty cool. So it's... Yeah, speaking of old stuff, somebody out there has a picture of me licking a Cray 1 in a parking lot, a Cray 1 computer. It's like that was the holy grail back in my day, you know. And now your PC is faster than a Cray was. Why was it in a parking lot? <laughs> a guy a guy was bringing it to VCF and they're like, it was ah. like Cray. So I'm telling you, those VCFs are cool if you've never seen a Cray computer. Or, or, you know, imagine loading it up to take it for a drive, right? Just, yeah. I'm taking the gray out, honey. <laughs> full it's box gigantic. Full. <laughs> Why is that wet on this one side? Did Was Bill Hurd here? It's <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's um, let's move on to the uh, Coriolis effect, which is the uh, web webcast that you do with uh, Ben Jordan. Ben Jordan, yes. So Coriolis-Effect.com, the name comes from the fact Ben's from Australia. Uh, I knew Ben through Altium, Altium being an Australian company. And uh, yeah, we get together, not every week in the week these days, but uh, about every other week we get together, we have guests on, we talk retro, we talk tubes, we talk electronics. And then especially with Ben's background, we talk about design for manufacturing, PCB fabrication, the actual PCBs themselves in addition to assembly. Uh, so it's it, it's a way to geek out, kind of. And uh, we do have a Discord server that goes with that. If you go to the Coriolis-Effect.com, you'll, you'll see a link to our Discord server. So hope to see you there. Yeah, I'm actually going to join it after this. Um, 
Oh, join there. it now. Join it now. Here, well, I'll join. Alt tab and like mess up the webcast. Oh yeah, we all just freeze and Yeah, basically that's <laughs> what would happen. <laughs> so what are the what are some of the topics that you guys get into? Well, design for manufacturing. Um, Johan Grip is uh, one of our contributors, and he has created an all-new C128 um, PC board. Uh, you know, from 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 reverse engineering it. So there's that project on there. You, we have you didn't have the are, files on your computer still. You think there were files? <laughs> That's a, a joke. <laughs> there were card Manila files. Fi uh, folder files. So <laughs> Transfers. Computer. Hey. Uh, I can't open this one. This is this used to be called the 264. It became called the Plus Four. This is one of the first ones I worked at at Commodore, and it's hand taped. Okay, so, so you hand taped the boards between the 120 between the. Plus four and the 128, we adopted a SciCard system, plugged it into a VAX, and so the C128 was Commodore's first uh, CAD-based uh, PCB. So, but you still had to type in the netlist yourself, and I mean it was ugly. Yeah. The um, so on the tape, um, was it where you could make a template, or is it each board had to be hand taped themselves? Like the oh, manufacturing of the boards. No, you 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 uh, laid it out at, at two to one, and then uh, it, and got it all correct. And you, you know, I have stories where I, I'm leaning over it and I stand up and there's tapes, there's traces <laughs> on my arm, right? The PCB guy looking at me like this, yeah. Um, but no, you used to go and get it laser plotted, and that. That costs money. That costs like $5,000 in the 80s to get a laser plot uh, where they would take that film and, and digitize it into a Gerber. And, you, you know, that was the days when you had to be real careful about your drills. Um, you had to have an aperture on your laser plotter of the right drill size so it has to be common. But yet the assembly ha fab house had to have the same drill in, in stock. None of this variable drill sizes like we got today where you just whatever hole size you want. So it was it was it was different. And, and if you had a photo plotter, you could print money. You, you could make 60,000 a year with with a photo plotter if you could keep it working. I'm curious, how long would a board like that take to cut tape and lay out by hand? Month to two. Most most boards I've seen weren't less than two months by the time you get through all the steps. And and how much changes? You know, there's no push and shove, right? It's you want to change. It's it's a change. You rip out traces, plop a plop a dip package in or something. And now the term rip up makes way more sense yeah oh you do you rip you pull it up and where it crosses other traces it'll pull them off you know it's like oh <laughs> but yeah <laughs> the good old days yeah 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 so yeah so you know i'm completely enamored by the ability to send a pcb way or jlc pcb and 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 get a board i get boards here in six days five working days or six days you know um, you, you, you just you, you can't beat what what used to be so expensive is is now a few dollars depending on where you go. Mm -hmm. So I it just 
you know, back in back in my day, we were trying to make our own PC boards, and uh, you know, I did all that with the the ferric chloride and everything, and 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 even milling machines and stuff. And now it's just like, why would I mill if I can just have it back next Monday? You know? Yeah, that that's I I did a the first couple of boards I ever did was you know dipping and etching and. I was just like, screw this. This is not worth the time <laughs> to no, do this. No. <laughs> right. First board I did, I laid out in MS paint and I ironed it onto copper and, and did the ferric chloride and it, it ended up working, but it was, I was like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Well, I, I, I remember flipping my board over so that the Sharpie side was down. You know, I draw, I draw it on mine with a Sharpie. Well, the agitation also did was wipe it off. So I agitated it nicely for 30 minutes and make made a blank PC board. You know, just no copper at yeah, all. Just FR4. Yeah, everything rubbed off. Yeah, nowadays we even use like PCB boards to make front panels for products. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I I can show you one. Um, they make great front panels because you can print whatever you want. Yeah, I don't want to get out a camera shot here too much, but I, 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 that's, I, I do that exact same thing. I, I make them, and you can get aluminum-sided uh, mm -hmm. PC boards. That's really funny because Steven just did that for a product. Yeah. Oh, nice professional job. It looks fantastic. Uh, yeah. I was, I was, I was shocked at how cheap it is, and uh, and I, I, I thought they were going to be prototype quality which is what i originally ordered them for and then they came in i was like i could sell this it looks good yeah enough. oh yes absolutely it's, it's sellable quality here's yeah, i wish our listeners could could see all of this it's so so it, and this is an aluminized one so it acts as a shield and, and everything, and then you print your logos and whatever size holes or slots, you know, in your front <laughs> panel. For those who can't hear, it looks like a little faceplate that goes on one extrude aluminum enclosure. Yes, uh, a yeah. little Hammond enclosure, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah. So the way I made this one fit so well, I, just to walk through the process a little bit, you get these little Hammond enclosures, uh, I go online to Hammond to pick them out and then go to DigiKey to really pick them out based on price and availability. Then you go back to Hammond and you get the, the Gerber, or you get the DXF file outline of what the PC board should be blasted into your CAD and it fits perfectly. So I've got this card that fits in here, it slides back up in. I can't do math that well if I'm not using tools, <laughs> you know? <laughs> If uh, I, I, I really blow it as a mechanical engineer, even though it's just addition and subtraction, but the, the housing people make it so easy for you to, to make a product that fits their housing. It's great. So uh, how did surface, so I'm from the days of through hole, as we talked about. And back then, there, China was closed and we made all our high quantity stuff in Japan. It was Japanese radio, transistor radios was a thing, right? They could manufacture something che way cheaper than we could, and that was Commodore's fame, was producing there instead of in California, where we could make a computer cost $200. Um, the, the, and I, I lost my train of thought there. We were making cheap, what, what was I talking? Oh, several through, through holes. Right. 
So the typically, when I first got to Commodore, they would send the design over to Japan and they would relay it out. And they're relaying it out for a Panacert auto insertion machine, the way it hits the board and needs clearance and whatnot. So I, I figured that's pretty stupid. And why don't we bring some Japanese engineers to the English office and work together to make the board once? And so the 128 was the first board I knew of that was laid out for the uh, Japanese Panasonic Panacert and the American, not Genrad. And uh, these I'll are the remember. surface mount, uh, not surface mount, these are the through-hole inserter machines. Right. So we made a board that could be inserted in the in the Far East or inserted in Pennsylvania. You know, so it was kind of, ooh, you know, look at look at the two countries to getting together. But but we put some time into that because, you know, when when you mess around with the quantities we did, a million, millions nothing, right? Um, if it, it's it's like playing with a fire hose. If if something goes wrong, everything gets wet, right? It's just so much pressure in a, in a line that size. So if you do have a design mistake, that bell-shaped curve's going to find you and punish you, you know, if, if you're outside of the, the distribution of what works. <laughs> so, and, and so that's where I got, I tell people I got my bachelor's at Pennsylvania Scale Company where I learned uh, uh, instrumentation design, but I got my master's at Commodore where I learned high quantity, you know, consumer design. And, and, and I had chip guys. I, the chip guys taught me how to look into their chip and I taught them how to look out to the system. Because chip guys sometimes don't know what's outside the package, right? And we had a chip that in the 128 called the 8563, the 80 column chip, Guy didn't, couldn't, he, he couldn't visualize how it was to be used in a system. And I missed that fact. And so when we went to go use things that are normal, they weren't there. Meanwhile, we had other engineers who I'd worked with closely, a guy named Dave DiOrio who worked on the Vic chip, uh, the later Vic chips. He knew what I needed from him. So it, that line between hardware and chip guide, they got all mixed up, you know, because we, we were best friends, we drank together, and we worked 18 hour days together, you know? So it, it, it was great uh, being able to go tell a chip guy what you need. It's, they're magicians, they're wizards, right? So is that like the signals coming, like what you would need to sync up with other components and that kind of stuff? Which which part the what like what telling a chip person what you would need? Oh yeah, he he had to understand not signals, buses, flows, back fresher. This you know the the system only. So I refer to a computer system as like take a pizza pan or a cookie sheet and put water on it and balance it. That's that's what computer design is like. Everything's got to be balanced, or again stuff gets wet. So, uh, you know, getting them to understand uh, too fast is bad too sometimes. So it's, and, and then the whole idea of static and stuff was kind of new in the 80s. <laughs> we, you know, what a keyboard, what, what could damage something through a keyboard, that kind of thing. So, yeah, we were making the stuff up as we went along. Here, I'll, I'll tell you a story as a matter of fact then. Um, the... When we did this one, 
the 116, which was the little cousin of the 264, I had noticed when you got the computer near the monitor, little black spots would appear. And I'm like, hmm. I'm hoping black spots on the monitor and not like on the keyboard itself. Right. Little black spots would appear on the monitor. And the bottom line is that the, the chip designer guy that had designed the, 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 let me back up. This is the Raspberry Pi of the 1980s. It cost $49. This would have sold millions, right? <laughs> if, we, if we had followed through and made it. Um, so the, the uh, again, I forgot where I was at. I, I keep getting back into the past. Uh, oh, CRT influencing the graphics of the Commodore 116. Right. So I take it, I put it right up against the TV and it crashes. Well, it turns out that they had used the data, data lines actually were on the connector going to the keyboard. That's how they were reading the keyboard was the data lines of a processor. We would never have passed FCC. Data lines hate going down these wires and into all the little stuff out here. And, and it turns out it showed up in the joystick also because the button on the joystick was, a, uh, uh, was one of the data lines. So my boss, I, I laughed when I saw the mistake because it was just so hilarious. And my boss was not amused. He's like, fix it or you're fired. I'm like, okay, I can fix it. He walks in two hours later, and I'm sitting there playing Wizard of War, right, on, on a joystick. And he's, I thought I told you to fix it. I, I just point, I grin and point, and I keep playing this game, and he's like, I told you to. Finally, I show him I had had a 20-foot cord put on the joystick. I had taken the back of the monitor off and wrapped the cord around the monitor where all that scary wiring is. So it goes behind the monitor, around it, and comes back out and plugs into the Commodore. And I'm playing on it to prove I had fixed the problem. But it was like, so my point there being, we had we were making this stuff up as we went along. So we made a lot of mistakes, right? So what was the fix? The fix was I had to put in a latch-driven buffer Okay. This uh, to 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 make it not a data line, but also I had to make the outputs be able to short together because a keyboard, if you push multiple keys, you're shorting outputs together. So you don't want TTL, mm -hmm. right? If you have a, a, a gate output and a gate output and the key closes between them, you you smoke it. So we turns out that Commodore made the 8529 single port latch IO chip. I went down, got it from production, and we had it working within, like I said, two hours later. So it, it was. So yeah, we were proud of our screw ups. Uh, it meant we were moving fast. I actually required my guys to make mistakes. If they were not making any mistakes at all, it meant they had too much time on their hands. Right. The, I needed them to make 5% mistakes. Then I knew we were going to succeed. So you mentioned that when you were doing all this design, it was all through hole. But uh, since then, we've, we use a lot of surface mount technology yeah. now. So yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what did you have to change as a designer just to? I had to make room on my bench for a hot air knife. <laughs> so hot air soldering guy i mean it's literally part of you see bench bench is that's a working bench and it's constrained for space and as you pointed out the wood is arcing under all the test equipment 
Um, but that was the main thing is, well, you, you're not desoldering with a soldering gun, but you need finesse, right? Especially on SMT. So just getting good, uh, there's there's a microscope back there, there's a nerve microscope over on the other side. Um, learning to work under a microscope with hot air was just, just a requirement. So I actually have a video on Hackaday. One of the things we haven't talked about is I created videos for Hackaday. I still do, but not very often. Um, but I did one on uh, all the different ways you can desolder SMT. So I show an infrared desoldering tool. I show multiple hot airs. I showed the tweezers. I, I did all that. So Google Hackaday and um, SMT desolder. Uh, it, it's, it's a good read. And then I had another one about how to make your own, how to do your own assemblies. And that's where I go into what kind of oven I use and what kind of flux and, and uh, oh, these for example. I mean, people you know with face uh, in their own basement. So, you know, uh, learning to do that and do that well. Um, I, I do use, uh, oh, I forgot the name of my oven software, uh, not Nucleo. Yeah, I'll come to me in a second. When when you get old, the, the memory becomes uh, read once, wait 10 minutes for it to become available again. So <laughs> we call it you know, herd I, memory. Herd I, I, memory. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, so so uh, Commodore days all through hole, you have a lot of through hole experience. When SMT components started uh, becoming available for right. designers. What was the feeling about that? Were, were designers like, oh, I don't want to touch that. I, I want my, my classic through-hole parts. Or was there a more of an air of, oh, this is cool new technology. I want to get involved with it. I, I think it depended where you worked, to be honest. Um, we were doing some surface mount at Commodore in 85 because the LCD machine was just coming out or was supposed to come out. Um, but I personally, uh, you know, I, I I found every excuse not to go to surface mount for about six, seven years there, and then made the leap. And and again, it's like, well, I get get the. So we didn't have cheap tools back then either. A desoldering station from Pace would cost you thousands at at a time when my my salary was forty thousand. You know. So having access to eBay and hot air soldering stations and, and stuff has made it all possible. It's, it's funny that you mentioned like uh, not wanting to make the jump. Um, I actually found this similar in, in with pinball where like honestly like the designers, we want to use it, but it's the users, the end users. They feel like they can't repair it as easily. Which, yeah, in yeah. my mind, honestly, like surface mounts way easier to repair without damaging the board if you have a hot air gun. Because I've seen way too many people like, looks like someone took a screwdriver to that through hole part. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I started in production um, as a production technician at Pennsylvania Scale Company. And one day I've got the big screwdriver and I'm leaning into it, and you hear a creaky noise coming out of the board because I didn't desolder everything perfectly. And the head of production is walking by and he goes, stop. Everybody come here. <laughs> 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 production people. 
show them what you were doing with the screwdriver. <laughs> and I never pried out another chip again. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I learned, yeah, so I learned soldering, you know, in production. I learned what broke in production. Uh, I learned how, what tests well or easily in production, what doesn't. Uh, you know, I learned stupid stuff like the heat sink grease would get washed away if we washed the boards before uh, one of the steps. I mean, just dumb stuff, right? Again, we're making it up. It's the 70s and 80s. Uh, but yeah, a lot, of, a lot of cool stuff. I remember our first dishwasher, all it did was make, uh, you know, we went to washing the boards with water. We had hard water. Nobody put in a water softener. So all we're doing is we could. I think we were using Calgon for a while to try and clean the boards. You know the stain, uh, uh, the glass stain remover for your dishwasher. I guess that but, would work as as a saponifier. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little the real, bit. The real fix was getting the you know the, the right water, di water. Um, so uh, my next next thing I want to talk about is. So I've taken a lot of old stuff apart and uh, sometimes you notice like green wire fixes and this is the, the wire is not green, but, right, um, right. but these are like fixes. And a lot of times they're in production like units, right. whereas a lot of stuff that we build at Macrofab typically doesn't like green wire fixes and our stuff is very rare because usually it ends up being cheaper, cheaper yeah. to just respin the board if you catch it before it like, I guess if you, if you built like a thousand plus or something, you might go back and rewire those. But if you can catch it early enough, you usually just spin the boards uh, right, before assembly. Right. But uh, I know like this, the, the C one uh, 28 has this really nice red wire on it. Yeah. Red um, sometimes white. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the uh, fixing of it in the old days. I keep starting sentences that way. We didn't even put solder mask on the board because it would cost, it would double, not double, it would increase the cost of the board and add days to the production. So if you look at like old green wire boards and stuff, some of them are so, you know, things were so expensive, there's not even solder mask on the boards if you look at them, because th that's just the day. But in the 128, that's this critter. This is a Commodore thing. These make great door stops. Okay. You shove that sucker under a barn door or something and it's going to do a uh, strong wind. Not a problem. All right. So that's the size of the thing. Now, great stocking stuffer. Recognize the size. I'm sorry. What? I said a great stocking stuffer. Yeah, <laughs> Commodore door stop. <laughs> and that looks huge, right? But the reality is two of those fit in a panel, almost exactly with just the right around. If I made this smaller, we could still only get two per panel, PCB panel, the big, uh, I forget the size uh, that, that they were back then, but it's still the common size today. So this was what we had to work with. Again, this was done using old tools. Uh, it's all through whole two layer board. There's no impedance control. The impedance of these traces jump from 120 ohms to 10, right? But there is this red wire here that goes around from this processor to the DRAM. 
What it is is the Commodore 128 has two microprocessors and it has a, a 6502 derivative and it's got a Z80 derivative. When we did the last rev of the board, 20% of the Z80 ones wouldn't boot it, when they booted to the Z80. And we traced it to crosstalk in just the way a two-layer board gets laid out. There's crosstalk mm -hmm. in this part, which we call the data river. Uh, each each of these areas had name. This is DRAMville. This is Bumfrick. This is, you know, it's a, each section has the name, <laughs> CPU land. So the, there is actually a story, though, behind how I found that crosstalk. Uh, this is, we had the problem, and on a Monday, it was the second time that my boss, uh, 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 oh, no, not on Monday, he didn't threaten me. But me and him got in a fight on a Monday, and this is after the CES show. I am worn out, and he's like, rah, 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 and I'm like, fine, then you fix it. Right? Because I, I haven't had a chance. He goes, fine, I will. I go, I'm like, fine, so will I. And I went home, took a shower and a nap, right? I hadn't slept a full night in, in months. So a week, it, 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 that's on Monday. Friday, he comes in, right? And everything's riding on whether these are shippable or not. And he comes in and he says for the second time, fix it or you're fired. I'm like, okay. I, you, I, so I've had a week to rest. Everybody appreciated that I took showers, you know, I, I bring <laughs> food for people and stuff. You know, I mean, it's 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 good time. So I got lucky. I go to the lab and I find the source of the crosstalk in Z80 only mode in about an hour. And the way I found it was I would stare at a, an oscilloscope. I would make the brightness really high and put as much off the screen as I can, and I would stare at it. Then I would look up at a blank wall, and I would see it in reverse, and I could see the glitch, the black on white instead of white on black. So I'm sitting there, I'm like calling over Frank Play, and I'm like, and he's staying, you know, he does it, he stares at the thing and then looks up at the wall, and he's going, I see the glitch, I see it, <laughs> and nobody believes us, right? So I'm like, yeah, I, I, I ran a wire. So now there's two paths between the Z80 and the DRAM because that's what was wrong. It was just, it was one wire when had the wrong, had junk on it at the wrong time. And uh, so to prove that it worked, we did 10,000 run, which would be production for somebody else. For us, it was a weekend. We just went down in production and ran 10,000 to test it. And, you know, and they did that to prove if herd was full of gamuck or not, you know, and it, it worked out that it did. So I, people have asked, well, why didn't you cut a new version of the PC board? And I'm like, well, that's the devil I know. I know I can fix that with that wire. But if we move those traces around, maybe the problem some moves to someplace I can't fix. Our problem was the amount of room we had wasn't enough, but that that's life, you know. So yeah, so that wire cost me a penny for the wire and probably 99 cents for the person that installs it, right? So I called, so that's a million dollar wire for every million units we sold that cost me a million dollars. But they all worked then. They did. I, now looking back, I'm impressed at that young Bill Hurd's confidence. To just go downstairs and run 10,000 of them? 
And what was cool is I didn't run it because they they made all the other engineers that that were on uh, not so critical projects do the work. So I'm walking up and down the super line at Commodore handing out beers, bottles of beer. (laughs) And the the one engineer is like, why are you walking around with beer and we are here doing your work? And I'm like, you know, what, what can I say? It's it's we're different people. It's. (laughs) <laughs> you, you found the problem you didn't have to fix the problem though right right and i found the beer and i shared it so there you go. yeah problem solver oh it, you know the guards had to learn that we carry beer in they they would ask well is there anything we we should know about it that bag you're carrying and the bag was torn you see michelob you know stick like nope nothing you need to know it's beer it's, it's <laughs> beer over. it's beer you call my boss <laughs> later on <laughs> so yeah when you live in the plant they don't care if you like bring your home and, and, and amenities with you I, I was known for 11 days without leaving the plant and i had a air uh mattress in my office that i would sleep in and sometimes hot bunk like about two in the morning i'd figure out what a problem was i'd get a technician who'd be asleep in my office wake her up she would do the wiring, I'd take a nap, and then she'd wake me up about 4.35 and I'd get up and we fixed, uh, every problem got fixed by the next day. We did not have any problems that lasted into the next day because then we'd start getting behind. We had five problems a day, you know, uh, during the five months we did the 128. We, we had five custom chips, they're breaking left and right. And uh, yeah, so we we worked twenty hour days and then spent the other four in the bar. <laughs> Sounds stressful. <laughs> um, so when I get, when I leave Commodore, guess where I end so, up so going to work? The bill's I, actually I, like thirty four years old. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the Commodore stress. So. Yeah, I'm like, I'm walking around the streets, you know, going, you got any stress, man, anything at all that I can use? So I ended up working at a Cooper Trauma Center, Level 1 Trauma Center in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, I became captain of a rescue squad, all just to get my stress fixed, because I got addicted to it from Commodore. So it's a real thing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They're like, yeah, I'd go out, shout at cars and stuff. You know, they, they had to do something with me. Okay, let's get them in a trauma center or something. <laughs> Unloading helicopters, which I did the service. So that was, I was old hand. So what do you guys think is cool for the assembly? What's, what's the newest piece of tech for you guys? We were talking paste in pen earlier and stuff like that. What, what floats your guys' boat in the assembly world? Is there a new insertion machine or a new technique or anything? So this is kind of old right now. Uh, I, I say we're going to say the same thing. It's <laughs> about a decade old now, I think. Um, but there's a... Uh, it's mainly because there's not a lot of these machines in the States yet. Um, but uh, there's a company called Micronic that builds a paste jetter. And so this is not a paste depositor, though, yeah. like with a syringe. No, it uses like a piezoelectric head to, to sputter it, to sputter the paste in the right spots. Right. So right. you don't have to use a stencil. Um, but the great thing is now you can do like a step stencil and not worry about any of the DFM problems of a step stencil. Or like we were talking about paste and pad before the podcast, you can right. just like over the 
the hole for the pacing pad, you can just have it keep injecting yeah, more into right it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an amazing machine when they work. <laughs> I, I was so up until they stop working, are they consistent or do they oh, go yeah. downhill before they? No, they're really consistent. What what really happens is uh, moisture can get in the airlines. Right. Um, we fortunately we fixed that moving our we like revamped our whole air system and fixed all that problems. We, so did we at the yeah. pin scale I was telling you about. Yeah. Yeah. Basically moisture kills pneumatics and uh, at our old facility, we just didn't have really good moisture control for it. Right. Right. But yeah, that's like that machine is I'm always like when I go and run that machine, I'm always shocked at how well it puts pace. Like it sometimes it can put pace down better than a stencil. Now, do you use the customer's paste pattern uh, directly, or do you go in and modify them then for your process? Do you do a shrink on the pads so or do, look for bridges or what? Do yeah, we typically do a one-to-one. -one, and then if it's a bigger pad over, I can't remember the number, but there's like a ratio. If it's over a certain number, we will like cross-hatch it to make it smaller. Window okay. it. Um or if it's like an under package part, like, yeah, we, we like the customer to provide it as like a one-to-one -one, and then we can modify it to suit the process. Cause you know, it changes if it's like, if we're going to paste jet it or we're going to stencil it, 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 right. it changes. Well, and, and, and one of the things about it that's, that makes it feel almost like cheating is that you can, you can paste the board and, and inspect it. And if you don't like say one pad, you can go to that oh, one pad, really? adjust yeah. one pad and then send it. Yeah. And send it back it, in. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to get a, I think there's, I have to get a new video cause it's been a while since I've videoed them, but there's not a lot of them in the States. And that's always surprising that we don't see them a lot here. Cause, um, like prototype PCB assembly is kind of like, and the low volume stuff too, is kind of like right. where America's manufacturing niche is for that kind of stuff. And you, it's like, why are we still buying stencils? But right. especially when right. you can just go in and again, tweak and like, oh, you can put a ginormous like connector right by the BGA now because you can just adjust the, vol the volume of solder on the fly. Okay. So it kind of throws out the whole like DR DFM problems with stencils is you just don't worry about them anymore. So as a customer, I'd like part of that, which is you're adapting to the realities of assembly, but where I wouldn't like it is then I'm dependent on you to do that reliably and consistently from run to run because I can't do it in the front end. Correct. Right? Yeah. And that's my thing that I'm wondering about. Like we talk paste and, and, and pad. Can I get that into my Altium library so that the Gerber is still the 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 source of all of it is holy? Truth. Yeah. And that's one thing I've been thinking about a lot on like how do we that's one thing in Macrofab I've been thinking about a lot of is like how do you take what because all manufacturers and CMs change the design in some way and form to make it easier to make and it's my job to catch them yeah, yes yeah and but so it's like how does macrofab do a better job at letting the customer know hey we tweaked this one thing because and right. you should incorporate it back into your design because that's one thing actually like eda tools don't have is like 
the paste volume. Like that's just not a thing they do. Like the the actual aperture opening, sure, you can draw that in, but the thickness of the stencil, besides just saying it's a four mil or five mil or right. That's and that's on an assembly drawing. That's not even just about the part. Right. And right. so that's and that something relies that's a, on someone reading it. Yeah, someone has to read that regard like regardless. It's not something you it's inherent to the part itself, which is something that EDA tools also have to get better at is like, oh, can you actually define the 3D space for that pad? Don't tell Audium that or they'll make their product harder to use. <laughs> they already, I mean, I've, I've got great stack up capabilities in Audium, right? But now you have to right do a paste stack up. Breaks, and I have to read out the whole database, bring in an artificial data, and then redo my stack up. You know, it's just, ah, oh, you, you, they were so close to, you know. Yeah. But it's so complicated that you, you find bugs, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to think about, like, because also, like, if you were doing PasteJet, you, you kind of have, like, I don't think there's a competitor to that machine yet. And so it's like, well, then you're stuck with that one vendor uh, or that one CM that's using it that way. But you could... If you're doing a, a step stencil, then yeah, that fixes that problem, but that has its own host of manufacturing so problems. Do do you have to worry about blowing off the VOCs in the paste? Do you, do you have to use a different kind of paste? Well, probably different consistency, but a different mixture in your paste when using the, the it, printer? It actually has its own blend. It's not from, you can get it from the company, but they have a couple of third parties that will provide it. Right. And it's a different kind of, I mean, it's still a no clean flux. Right. And, but it's weird because when it, when it, when it reflows, um, it has some like special capabilities in it or like it has like low VOC or something, but it makes like a hard shell hmm. on it. It's, it's almost like old rosin where like the rosin would make like a little right, right. spot on, on top and like float on top of it. But rosin would be sticky still. This hardens up to like a, a, a caramel coating almost on larger pads. I'll have to take That's some photos true. for people. To, yeah. But it's, it's also one of those things where like if you don't know about that and you try to probe it with your multimeter, it will you won't poke through the, the, the caramel shell. You have to chip it. Yeah, you have to kind of like chip the flux off of it and then you can probe the pad. It's wow. It's weird. Yeah, and and it does does it look grapey or anything when it does that or just it looks like reflowed yeah, solder. It looks like reflowed solder. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. It is kind of oh. weird though. Uh, they they come out with a a water based uh, flux for that machine. I kind of want to try that out, but the no clean works so well that yeah. So that's why I was going to ask you: Is your your process is now a no clean based process? We actually do no clean for smt and then we do uh water rosin. soluble for no rosin oh, uh, water okay. soluble for through hole and then okay. and i think i guess don't quote me on this because i don't know in the specifics but i'm pretty sure it's sat it's sac 305 for sure on the smt and i think through hole is sn99 so it's like 100 percent tin right right because i think now, that's what the is in that selective solder how do you do your, oh, you just answered my question. You use selective solder for your through hole. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm from the days of uh, drag solder machines and fountain. Yeah, yeah. 
what, what was it? Not fountain solder. Uh, wave wave solder. Wave solder. Thank you. Yeah. yeah well, if you're going to be doing a million boards, you don't want to have a, a chocolate fountain computer <laughs> go driving around, right? Yeah. How long does it take to clean that? That that looks like something that probably takes an hour to turn on in the morning. The, the selective, selective solder machine. It, it's actually just like a wave. It's right. just it's, yeah, it's the same thing. It's actually it makes that. Yeah, it's, it actually makes a little standing wave that's driving around. So it's actually pretty much the same thing. Wow, uh, those things are cool. Yeah, the basically the advantage of the selective is you don't need a wave palette. That's that's what you get out of it. What, what's a wave palette? I have a feeling oh. I use a, a shield. Yeah, yeah. So if you have SMT components on the bottom side, right? Uh, it, your wave solder doesn't rip them off. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what's the shield made of? That's that's actually not something I've had to work with before. Durostone, uh, right? I think that's the trademark name is called Durostone. It's like a mm -hmm. it's like a FR4 derivative. It's like Just a more a really denser, high temp epoxy is, is plastic. It like, a, like a tape or like a piece of plastic in form. Oh, it's it's, uh, it, it's milled plastic basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's oh. a uh, uh, a composite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, back in the day, we had to worry about um, hitting the the wave solder in which direction, you know, because they're, well, you guys know that, yeah. they, there's reliability and stuff. And there's times where you throw caution to the wind and <laughs> make it fit, you know. The, Just go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, do you think I, I, I got like a penny per computer? No. <laughs> <laughs> You got an uh, an attaboy per computer, right? I, they, they treated us well. They 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 made the guards not bust us for our beer, so we were well treated. It was they, they knew what 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 created the ability to stay there for so many hours was not needing to go to the bar. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, do we have anything else that we want to talk about, or? Uh... We should we wrap this up because we're over we're four yeah, minutes over time. Yeah. So no, you've you've hit the points. You know, again, I'm a big fan of VCF. I think they're doing wonderful stuff, and I recommend everybody check out vcfed.org and check their schedule there. They they're all over. I'm just going to the southwest and west, but there's a southeast, a midwest are also happening this summer. And so, then, um, where can people find out more about you, Bill? If Google. someone here Google that's listening Bill doesn't know about L. you. Yeah. Google Bill with one L, which is how I spell my name, Heard, and there's no other Bill Herds with one L. So you'll see I'm in like Wikipedia and stuff like that. Um, so it'll take you to like c128.com. There's a herdware.com website. Oh, I'll tell you one quick last story. <laughs> the... Uh, on the Easter egg of the C128, if if you don't look closely, it says software and then three guys, and then it says herdware and three guys, and then link arms don't make them. But they, they, they invented the word herdware, which would only work with my last name. So for, for hardware, yeah. So very cool. Hey, guys, this is great, though. I appreciate you, you all taking the time to talk uh, talk with me like this. And I love talking to the other side of the assembly house, right? Because uh, we're used to pitching stuff over the wall 
and we just hope it makes a nice sound when it lands, right? And we know you're over there doing things to make it sound good when it lands. Yeah. But I, I, I like knowing what those are that you do because, again, I like to fix them in the front end if I can, you know, with regard to paste or something. So. Yeah, yeah. Maybe um, in the future we have a discussion more about that side um, and we could maybe do it on your show. Yeah, yeah. If I'm not yeah. just inviting myself, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, would you like to come on Coriolis Effect? I would love to, Bill. Okay, that'd be cool. I, I believe you know Ben Jordan, our co-host. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Ben's been on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, I'm going to thank you one more time, Bill, because it's been a blast. Yeah, I had fun. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.